0: As a purpose-native organization, you have the benefit of starting from scratch with the purpose in mind. And the most important element to doing that successfully is to align your purpose outcome with your financial outcome. And the best way I can describe how we've done that here, hopefully people can take some analogies from, is that the benefit that we're doing for the world is innovating and creating low-carbon, naturally-derived materials And those materials are woven right into the actual product that we're selling.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where I interview the brightest minds in sustainable business and learn how they align purpose, profit, and innovation. Today, we'll be joined by Joey Zwillinger, co-founder and CEO of Albert, the preeminent brand in environmentally conscious footwear. You've probably worn a pair of Albert's extremely comfortable shoes before, or you have at least one friend who's constantly bragging about theirs. I certainly love mine. But a quality product is only part of what makes the company so special. Albert's mission is to create apparel with the lowest possible carbon intensity, and this purposeful directive permeates every aspect of the organization, driving them to become one of the most disruptive forces in footwear and fashion. Joey has always had the ambition to make an impact, and he's achieved this by investing and innovating to find natural, low-carbon material alternatives to plastic. But Allbirds has grand aspirations to improve the entire industry, so they make it a point to open-source their discoveries in order to encourage industry-wide collaboration and hopefully make a more sustainable fashion and footwear future. So first, thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting
0: to have you here today. Amazing to be with you. Love the show and uh, excited to share a bit about Allbirds' story and anything else. Fantastic. Let's start before Allbirds. Let's
1: start with, with you. You grew up, I think, in the Bay Area, right? Yes. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? What were the big aspirations and dreams of little Joey?
0: I feel like I was a pretty typical kid that thought he was going to be a pro athlete and made a signature that I could sign on the side of balls uh, that was like illegible, but looked a little bit like my name. Uh, I didn't have a ton of role models in business, so that was not at all in my future vision.
1: Well, hopefully we're trying to change that for the next generation and create a bunch of these great stories for folks to be able to hear and get inspired by. So you also, you mentioned you want to be a pro athlete. I know you were a huge soccer star in high school. As you think back... Few days as a athlete. What kind of lessons do you think you drew out of that, both uh, in your business career, but also specifically around Albers, around shoes?
0: Hmm. First of all, I wouldn't say star uh, would be <laughs> maybe a stretch, um, but I did have a pretty good run. And as I was playing, there's a, a handful of lessons that I took out of sports that have stayed with me forever. You know, one, I'm just an ultra-competitive person, it's how I'm wired, and it's all about outcomes, and yet a deep understanding that how teams come together and interact with one another is actually the way that you develop great outcomes. And then there's a unique one that I started understanding pretty early on, which was about diversity and meritocratic environments. And you know I grew up in a fairly homogeneous place. There was you know mostly white kids, all kind of middle class or somewhere upper class. And so not a lot in my daily life when I go to school, but when I get to the sport field, what I would find is that all walks of life came together, different skin colors, different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic, you name it. And it completely went out the window. What baggage you brought with you? or what privilege you had with you. It was purely about how you could deliver. And all the way through college, it's always been the most meritocratic and diverse groups of people I've ever interacted with. And it showed me the power of having that culture of performance and that culture of outcomes. And so it really started to shape me around this idea of team culture, the value of diversity, and the cost of not being open-minded to diverse backgrounds.
1: Yeah, intrigued with the analogy of the of the team, and I mean I know every position on a team has a very particular role. Oftentimes, you know the midfielders are right there, the glue that kind of connects the defense and the offense. They both attack and defend. They probably do some of the most running around on the field. Sounds an awful lot like an entrepreneur to me. Uh, So I'm curious, you know, do you think there are any particular roles that fit your personality type both on the field and in the office?
0: It's a really interesting question. You know, I think there is more definition around the roles that you play when you're playing sport. And I think as in business it's so dynamic. And there's a whole bunch of individual players that have defined roles that need to understand how they ladder up to overall success for a business. Yeah. And there's executive level folks that need to be much more dynamic and in the entrepreneurial phase, the very early phase, they really need to be player coaches. And then there's the role of the, the founder CEO, which I think is much more akin to the coach. It's really how to effectively manage a team of people and actually create out of thin air. What does it mean to win the game? And it's not as obvious as I need to score more goals than the other team. So you need to actually define what that is. And then you need to create that vision in a way that galvanizes a group of incredibly talented people to come to your organization and fight for 70 hours, 80 hours a week. And pour their passion into it because they believe in what you're doing, both from a financial and from a purpose perspective. Because you know life is short, and I think most people recognize that if you're just doing it for money, it's not gonna it's not gonna lead to much fulfillment.
1: I love that analogy extended. So it wasn't all sports in college, right? Uh, what did you study?
0: I started as a mechanical engineer and ended up finishing as an industrial engineer. There's a blend of the psychology and discipline of organizational design blended with heavy statistical and quantitative analysis with frameworks that allow you to set up process and allow for a very clear definition of what outcome objective you have and different constraints that you want to bind yourself to, or you need to bind yourself to in order to most effectively get to that optimized outcome. And you need to define a process that then allows creativity to flourish. And people often think about process as a hindrance to creativity. And I I find it quite the opposite. And that when you constrain a process with very clear sets of constraints and a very clear objective outcome, you have an amazing, flourishing, creative culture that can come out of that and emerge. And that's that's how I've tried to utilize the training mindset that I developed as an engineer and then continually applied in business for the last 20 years.
1: Coming out of school, like you, I, I was a banker, although not at an esteemed Goldman Sachs. (laughs) And then you did some consulting and ended up in venture capital. Walk us through that path a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's a little confusing sounding from the outside, actually. So uh, what really happened is I met a guy in a cafe when I was a junior in college, and I said, I want to do HR. And I was like, people run business, and HR is the people part of business, so I want to do HR. And this guy was like, oh, my company has HR internships. And I was like, okay, great. I'd love to apply for one. And so two weeks later, I was in an efficiency hotel in lower Manhattan interviewing for an HR internship with Goldman Sachs and ended up getting that job and doing it and learned a ton and particularly learned that what I thought HR was wasn't exactly what I envisioned and it wasn't a good fit for me as like a functional discipline. So I ended up deciding not to go back to Goldman Sachs. And uh, you gotta you gotta understand like where I was coming from. I, I really love math, I love physics, I love engineering. I, I had zero clue what business was. Truly didn't know. Sure. If you said you were a businessman or a businesswoman, I'd be like, Great, that's sufficient enough granularity for me. Uh, I will ask <laughs> no more questions. And so I, I was I decided I wanted to get a little bit of a broader opportunity and went to a couple consulting firms and I liked Deloitte the best from their info pitch in college, and so I jumped on it and got after it and dug in with an amazing amount of ambition and curiosity, and I found something joyous to learn in every single project that I did, whether it was doing negotiations at a dump for a waste management company or doing a sophisticated budgeting process for a consumer packaged goods company with uh, extremely tight processes, and um, started getting the itch for environmental science and its ability to make a huge impact on the world when blended with smart public policy. And I I knew I didn't want to get into public policy, so I figured one of the best paths to get into making a meaningful difference in the world, which is something I I caught the bug on from my parents— And so I decided entrepreneurship was probably the most dynamic aspect of the private sector where I could use my own individual creativity to look at those opportunities and do something very meaningful financially and very meaningful societally. And so I I joined a venture capital firm, did some investing, was really focused on trying to do deals in the clean tech sector, as it was called back then, and ended up falling in love with a... Company called Solazyme. I was around the Bay Area and other parts of the country looking at dozens and dozens of what was called clean tech companies back then. Yeah. And given that I wasn't like a deep tech scientist, I was looking at things that were a little bit more along the commercial uh, pathway. So I was looking at advanced solar technologies and biotech or biofuels generally. And ended up falling in love with the technology and the people at Solozyme, which was an incredible technology. And using biotechnology manipulated small organisms to produce anything that could compete with any derivative of petroleum, from fuels to a variety of petrochemicals and a whole bunch of things. And so that was the pathway there. And and I saw Solozyme as the best opportunity to make the biggest impact on climate change. That existed in the world at that time and also had a dynamic entrepreneurial opportunity that I could learn an incredible amount from
1: we we had a the guys from Checker spot on a few months ago, and I never thought i'd be so excited to talk about algae, but they're using it as a alternative to build high performance skis and I just thought that was the, the coolest thing, and all of a sudden found myself immersed in this land of material science <laughs> which is all around us, everywhere, all the time, but you know we don't pay much attention to it.
0: So the CEO of, of Checker Spot was the person who hired me at Solzheim. and <laughs> uh, some of that core technology from Solzheim is what they're they're using at Checker Spot. So yeah, the, the future and the promise in that technology is incredible. I think there's yeah. the balance of your speed and commercial aspirations and the capital you structure to bring that commercial reality into life versus the pace of change of technology, particularly in something as difficult as, as biotech with new molecular pathways, with a new organism that hasn't been manipulated. But that's a business and technical challenge that's extremely exciting and I still think has great great yeah. promise for the future.
1: One more kind of setup question, because you made me think about it, and I think it actually has applications to all birds also. Cleantech was... What it was called back then, it was already a hot sector. Now both the public and private markets are allocating massive amounts of capital into clean tech, nature tech, blue bonds, green bonds, like you name it, it's it's a hot space in the in the capital market sphere. And I'm curious, having spent some time in market allocation as a as a venture capitalist, how you think this unfolds? Like how do folks find good deals? How do companies tap into all the capital that's there for for doing good. Like what how, how does this next chapter unfold?
0: I think there's been two two times in recent history, let's call it the last 20 years, where there's been moments of climate panic and it often coincides with elevated oil prices. And so the oil prices spike and there's a bunch of money that rushes in and then public policy doesn't create the regulatory and other framework for the private sector to understand what the long-term incentives are for greener technologies to compete with petroleum. And then basically most of them get washed out. And all those businesses end up upside down because oil comes back down, there's less capital coming in, it's less of a hot sector, people lose interest, and there's no public policy. You know, this time around, it does feel different. We've now had elevated oil prices and the desire to fix our climate isn't changing. I think people really recognize and the IRA that was passed this year was a step forward. I think there's a lot more action happening under the hood right now in the U.S. government that is making great strides. There's a lot of good stuff happening in Europe around the use of of border adjustments and trade policy to affect different developing nations energy grids and the cleanliness of those. So there's a lot of really good stuff happening here, which are creating, it's not like a, a one-time, very clear regulatory framework, but it's it's being cobbled together sufficiently right now that I'm growing my optimism that the frameworks of public policy are going to be in place such that it's going to incentivize the private sector to continue to invest in climate tech or whatever you want to call it. I think there is a a lot of money flooding into it. Some of that is going to be completely wasted money, but there's going to be some real winners that come out of it. And in any huge sector of you know multi-generational 50year wave like semiconducting or computing or you know web 1.0, web 2.0, these are like multi-decade things that happen. This is another multi-decade wave. and this is going to be a place that money will continue to flow in. So I, I'm a big believer that that you got to find secular changes that are happening in life that meet with your individual purpose as you're managing your career. And this is one of them that is, I feel, gives great societal value if you spend your life and human capital time against this problem. And I think the financial structure and the regulatory structure is coming together in a way that is quite optimistic.
1: Yeah. Well it seems like there's some systemic factors too this time around right there people are recognizing the need for supply chain resiliency and we can't be you can't always be reliant on foreign petroleum for material production like, there needs to be Supply chain resiliency extends beyond just the price of oil for cars, and extends all the way to you know polymers and everything that's being made. I think
0: the biggest, the, I think the biggest thing is less about energy independence and petroleum independence. I think it's more about the geopolitical strain that we have with China right now, sure. and that's the biggest set of turbulence that's going to be shocking the markets in the next five to ten years. And I think the energy ecosystem and the geopolitical issue with China and the U.S are going to come together and can be solved with more energy independence, greener grids, and a smarter use of raw materials as inputs and where they're manufactured. And the energy grid that's used to manufacture products that we consume in the U.S., those are going to come together. And that's actually, I think, where the root of maybe bipartisanship, if you want to be really optimistic, can actually come together. That gives me quite a bit of optimism. All right. So now
1: let's move to Oliver's. I want to start kind of at the beginning, I I want to hear the origin story, but then I also want to hear kind of your part of that story, your transition into Allbirds. So
0: yeah. Sure. So um, my co-founder, Tim Brown, is really the inspiration for like the consumer trend that was happening and the early execution around the product itself. So I'll talk about his background and then I'll, I'll fill mine in because I think that's where the two pieces became greater than than the the sum of the individual parts. So, t- Tim was a professional athlete for over ten years. He rose to be the captain of uh, the vice captain of the New Zealand national team. Played in the 2010 World Cup. And so obviously I had a phenomenal career, much better than the one we talked about for myself, <laughs> and um, was sponsored by the big sportswear companies and saw how they were innovating and really believed that there was just something missing from the industry. And particularly watching what is happening with human behavior as we get cell phones and smartphones, people are on the go demanding a much more versatile wardrobe. And, and lo and behold, the apparel industry comes up with athleisure in a way that's like incredibly compelling to meet that moment in the new demands of what your daily life looks like. Yet footwear, you're still seeing gigantic logos walking into work or going to dinner. And the design intent around these products for performance orientation doesn't meet that versatile lifestyle and let alone the formal one. And the formal ones, brown shoes and whatnot, certainly aren't meeting the needs of that more casual or versatile human experience. And so in that sweet spot was this idea for a reductive design philosophy that had this minimalist beauty to it. And using incredibly comfortable materials, Tim was from New Zealand, as I mentioned. And so looking out his window, seeing 30 million sheep around said, how does the world not know about merino wool and the miraculous qualities that this can drive for comfort and, and a bunch of other attributes? And why has it been done in shoes? And so that, that was the initial concept. Now, I think where where I come into this, so I was at Solazam, as I mentioned, I ran the industrial group, which was essentially looking to replace petrochemicals with green chemicals derived from algae. So I would go talk to multinationals, I would talk to big brands, and I would say we could derive essentially anything that you're using as a chemical building block for your consumer product. But we could do it at a zero carbon footprint and we could give you a different supply chain that could that could have advantages for you, all while getting you off of this petroleum ecosystem where you're, you're kind of just a, a little fly on the back of an elephant. And- We would have the first conversation, everyone would fall in love, and then by conversation three, we'd be talking to the sourcing manager who's uh, saying, can you just give me plastic and make it really cheap, because that's actually what we need to do here. And so I realized there's, there's this, I believed, a deep conviction for... Consumers wanting to connect their values, particularly around the environment. And I could see that the ingredients and the components were available because not only was I looking at SoulZone, but I was looking at the whole competitive landscape of other naturally derived materials and the petrochemical infrastructure and understood that the components were available to make this a no compromise, naturally derived, low carbon intensity material and meet that consumer need. But the brands were getting in the way. And I had these light bulb moments like all the time, really. It was like not just once, it was like on, off, on, off. I made a surfboard out of an algal-based polyurethane foam, and had a pro surfer riding a competition on the board. It performed exceptionally well, and and yet the surfboard blank cost ten bucks more on a hundred-dollar surf blank, which retail that end retail for seven to. 1500 bucks for a surfboard, and no one would pay $10 more for a surf blank because they just didn't understand how to effectively market a high-performance new material to a group of people that are sitting in the water with seaweed and dolphin floating by. Like, How could you not pick a better audience to market this to? So it struck me that going downstream, meeting the consumer where we, they needed to be met, and doing this in a way where I could find an opportunity that could systematically bring novel new materials. That were low carbon intensity, naturally derived and created a great consumer experience and didn't sacrifice any of the performance attributes that you were looking for, cost attributes or whatever. was an incredible opportunity to maybe not move as many molecules and weight as I would have envisioned that I could at Solazime, but Actually, expressing the way that consumer products should really be built and forever should be built, which is more like a tree than it is a typical consumer product where it's not extracting from the earth. It's, in fact, hopefully helping. And so, uh, w- fortunately, Tim launched the first iteration, the first prototype of, of the Wool Runner, which is our first product at Allbirds on Kickstarter. I was one of his first customers because I got the email because uh, I was friends with his wife. And um, after a year, I think Tim would, would admit that it was a year of, of great struggle to try to move from idea to business. And he was in London at the time. My wife suggested to me that, hey, maybe you should chat with Tim. And the reason for that being... His wife and my wife happened to be roommates in college and very close friends. So got that nudge from uh, the smartest and most supportive and strategic uh, person in my life, which is my wife, Liz, and got the nudge, ended up talking with Tim for about six months. And over that period, pieced together what we thought was an incredibly compelling opportunity to, do just what I described, systematically bring amazing materials and better consumer experiences through shoes Uh, and do this in a way that could compel people to see uh, that the dearth of leadership in the footwear industry and beyond was something that needed to be filled and could create a a once-in-a-generation type brand um, that we're trying to build at Allbirds. And so that's what we embarked upon. We agreed to do this about, let's call it April, May of 2015. I quit Solazime in July. We raised capital in August We launched our first product after an incredibly stressful period of time on March 1st of 2016. We did it with websites open in the U.S. and in New Zealand and um, sold a million dollars worth of product in the first month and went on to start the foundation of something that would be an incredible first chapter of Allbirds, which kind of leads us to today, I would call um, moving to chapter two here. And it's been a very, very good start and now couldn't be more excited about the future.
1: When you think about Chapter One, and I mean, what was the growth hack that got you to a million dollars in sales on your first full product launch in a rush time frame? That's just such an incredible accomplishment. And I'm wondering if you look back and think about how you did that, what lessons learned for others do you have in that?
0: I'd say the biggest lesson is that there is a zero growth hack. That's not the way you get this done. And if you think about it, you know, Tim had been messing around with shoes since 2010. And put up a Kickstarter in 2014 with the initial prototype. Once we started talking towards the end of 2014, we took six months to really sharpen the focus of the 99 things we would say no to and the one thing we would say yes to. And we then took that focus and actually invested a significant amount of capital. I mean, I think we must have invested at least a million and a half dollars before we launched on March 1st of 2016 And it was all focused on an extremely sharp offering and a sharp message. And that's the importance of focus. We poured everything into making the best product that we could with the clearest message and then amplify that message as best we could. We ran around and talked to lots of journalists the two or three weeks leading up to launch. We gave him a pair of shoes. We had that in time to be able to deliver all that seed product. And, you know, one of the journalists was from Time magazine said it was the most comfortable shoe ever invented, put that out into the world on our launch day. So, you know, a lot of hard work with an incredible amount of focused messaging can create good luck. And I think, you know, we helped create some good luck and we got a lot of good luck and took advantage of, of some timing and where we were in the world to reach consumers more effectively, sell directly via e-commerce on a, on a platform like Shopify, which enabled us to seamlessly enact a wonderful customer experience over the internet, like really quite easily at that time in 2015. So anyway, so that that's uh, a lot of things come together. And I, I would say that Trying to be like a get rich quick scheme with a growth hack is uh, maybe it works for a little while, but that's not a sustainable process. And the hack is doing all the work. <laughs> yeah, over a long time.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you'd always envisioned the products that you were working on with the company that you then were helping create would be a leader in sustainability. Yeah,
0: it was the reason why we started the business. Right.
1: Talk to us about that kind of business analysis, that business case for other folks that are out there thinking about starting their company that have an idea, have a plan, and recognize the need for it to be a positive offering for the world. Like, how did you think through that business case?
0: In hindsight, we kind of created a term for it, which I would call purpose-native. And as a purpose-native organization, you have the benefit of starting from scratch, With the purpose in mind. And the most important element to doing that successfully is to align your purpose outcome with your financial outcome. And the best way I can describe how we've done that here is that the benefit that we're doing for the world is innovating and creating low carbon, naturally derived materials. And those materials are woven right into the actual product that we're selling. And so we have to rely on this R&D process to create something that's both lower carbon, but also unlocks better customer experiences. So our growth is entwined with our material science and engineering, and our cost structure is aligned with it. And everything goes towards the same objective, which is to make money using low-carbon intensity, naturally-derived materials. And that alignment of business model allows so much clarity in how you build a business and how you message to consumers. Not to say that it's always easy. There's always going to be tensions. But that's just the same as a company that, let's say, has no environmental purpose and is balancing cost and quality. So thinking about your purpose in the same way that you think about a quality or durability or cost is the right way to think about this. And you embed it right into your business model from day one. And you take a long-term view of how you create sustainable and durable growth and profit. And you do that while also achieving an objective to reduce your, in our case, carbon down to zero. I think that it
1: this is how consumers are starting to think. Many consumer segments are already well down this path. But I'm curious how you think about the, the broader consumer universe and how do we help incentivize our market to customers in order to bring them into this same sort of purpose-driven
0: framework? You know, it's a challenge we're wrestling with today. I would say that, by and large, consumer products in general, and I would say our industry is significantly guilty of this, is using greenwashing and marketing sustainability that lacks any kind of authenticity. And they're using it because they know it's a consumer trend that they're supposed to they're supposed to do. So, you know, what we've tried to do there is start with a, a high integrity process to really educate consumers and maintain full accountability on our company. We obviously have a a lot of commitments out there of what we're doing. We're very transparent about it. So in 2020, our, our kind of baseline was probably about 30 or 40% below what the industry average was from carbon emissions. We pledged to get that down 50% by 2025 and over 95% reduction by 2030. And we show how these targets are budgeted and resourced. We report against our progress towards that objective every year. And we even give guidance to other stakeholders via our earnings calls on on an annual basis. When we give financial guidance, we also give carbon guidance. So that's a Corporate level accountability. And when you go down to the product level, we've actually developed a tool so that we can do it down to the kilogram or down to the gram, really, of carbon equivalent emissions that are through scope one through three, which means it includes our whole supply chain of the life cycle emissions of our products. And we label them on the product or on the packaging that the product comes in on every single product so that you as a consumer can make a choice based on the impact on climate as well as the cost, style, performance, et cetera. And I think um, that level of shining a flashlight on ourselves to have transparency and accountability is a step towards the the process of educating the consumer and bringing a whole industry along this journey. And that really culminated, you know, last week, we just announced our project Moonshot, which was to develop the first ever carbon-neutral shoe using a whole suite of regenerative and low carbon naturally derived materials. And we're gonna reveal what that product looks like to the world in, in June. But short of that, we opened up the toolkit, showed how we did it, showed how we calculated it, enabled other people to come along for the journey. And so that's where the origins of the Moonshot project come from. And we embed all of these learnings from Moonshot into the rest of our product line, and it's woven into the DNA of everything that we do here as a company. And And I think um, over time, that just creates wonderful benefits for the brand and for our business.
1: You mentioned opening up for the industry to, to see. And I know you guys have always been really cutting edge, open sourcing a lot of your innovations for the entire industry to try to advance more sustainably. And I'm curious how that conversation has gone. How did you get to that point? and And how, how do you feel like the industry is incorporating it or coming along for the ride?
0: Yeah, there's, there's been a few examples in our history. You know, I think you can compete vigorously for market share in an industry, but collaborate on sustainability. Mm-hmm. And in any consumer products industry, typically there's – a manufacturing ecosystem out there that does a lot of the work for the brands. And beyond that is the raw material supply chain. And the raw material supply chain typically is incredibly capital intensive. So for example, if you're using polyester, polyester comes out of a byproduct of fuel production, the petrochemical industry gets it, makes a ton of polyester, and there's probably one factory will have $1.5 billion invested in it to take some output from petroleum and make it into polyester. So a billion and a half dollars, what brand in the world would spend a billion and a half dollars on a factory just to make one component that they use in my case in a shoe? The answer is no one would do that. And so when we think about that value chain, when you go further upstream to the raw material source, that is the place where you can collaborate deeply with your competitors and you can bring much better low carbon materials to the world and you can share those and then you can sprinkle your magic pixie dust and do a great design execution and market it really effectively. And that's what you do as a brand. So one example of this is we went to Brazil. Uh, we knew we knew early on we had a wonderful suite of materials for the top of the shoe, the insole of the shoe, the laces, the eyelets. We had We had all that really dialed. But the, the bottom of the shoe, the sole, is really difficult to do, not from the petrochemical ecosystem. What we did know from my background at Solazime was that there was a company down in Brazil leading the charge on green chemicals, taking waste stream of sugarcane and translating that through a, a string of chemical steps to something that was carbon negative. And we convinced them to take that process and apply it against one of the most ubiquitous materials in the sneaker industry, which is also used as an adhesive in automotive and a few other things. And we convinced them to help us create sweet foam, which is this sugarcane derived foam that we use for the bottom of our shoes, the soles. When it's produced at our partner factory in Brazil is a carbon negative material and is actually sucking tailpipe emissions out of the sky embedding it into the sugar source in sugarcane and the waste stream when you make refined table sugar that comes out of that can be turned into a shoe sole. And so it's actually better for the world that we're doing this versus if we hadn't been there in the first place. And that's that idea, really embracing that idea of being a tree more than a, a consumer product company typically thinks about themselves. And so we, we decided to do that. And we said from the beginning, let's open source this technology. We'll structure some business terms to make sure we maintain an advantageous position But at the same time, let's open it up so that we get a huge amount of volume for this product coming into your plant. And then as that volume scales up, we'll reduce the cost over time and everyone's going to win from that. So the cost goes down, competitors can all have access to it and sprinkle their pixie dust on it. And in the meantime, we'll make a high cushion, wonderful shoe sole that also is doing some really fantastic work for the world.
1: Do you think, when you think about the industry, there are certainly players that are some that are trying hard with action, some that are talking a big game in in fashion and, and apparel. But I'm curious how you what you'd grade you'd give the industry as a whole and how you think we can help move
0: that grade up. I would say the industry as a whole is like a D. Yeah. I mean there there's there's mostly vacuous claims and platitudes and greenwashing. I see ads all the time for Sustainable products pictured with a hundred percent plastic shoe and plastic apparel on the person who's running, and that's more often the norm than anything else. And there may be a little bit of recycled polyester in there or whatnot, but that is not the solution. I, I think that the um, the industry is really good at marketing and making money on whatever the the near term trend is, and horrific at any authentic action outside of trying to make as much money as they can. And in the end, I think it'll bite them because where consumers are headed is in a place of authentic purpose around connecting things to these, uh, these values.
1: I want to think a bit big picture and maybe optimistically. I feel like it, generally it's an act of optimism or hope. Believing that you're going to succeed is requisite <laughs> to the job. And in particular, I think to be in this sector working towards building a business that's also doing good in the world requires a, an extra dose of, of hope and optimism. And so I'm curious how you keep that perspective. You, you mentioned you're feeling more optimistic now given some of the macroeconomic and, and regulatory environment conditions. But like, How do you wake up every day and ready to, to fight the battle and stay,
0: stay engaged and stay energized? I guess as an entrepreneur, you certainly need to be optimistic, but you also need to be good at identifying big problems and big secular problems. If you're going to try to make something meaningful, it needs to be big and very hard. And so expecting an overnight success is not realistic. And frankly, if if you did, you probably overestimated how big the problem was. And so I think what, what I find is that Do I get some intellectual stimulation out of trying to find a a better way to steal market share from my competitor? Yes. Do I find intellectual stimulation in working in the retail stores and figuring out how best to merchandise product and create a selling culture in the store? Yes, I do. But does that get me out of bed every day, excited to come to work? Not entirely. What I need is to be constantly tackling something that's important And feeling like what I'm doing, while it's a micro decision every day, it ladders up to something that is more meaningful and can contribute more significantly to a huge, huge problem that we're facing. And if I can play a role in that and do something meaningful and show that the way people express themselves through fashion can actually unlock a huge amount of value for environmental considerations and maybe even policymakers will see what those trends are like and, and understand how to better establish regulatory frameworks. I believe that all that is possible. And Having a group of people working their asses off every single day to fight against this kind of problem is, I think, what is the meaningful aspect of life and why work is fulfilling. And so bringing people together to all come around and rally around this journey to show that we can make a lot of money while also making a huge impact on environmental concerns in the world, uh, well beyond our industry, frankly, if we're successful, could could be the most meaningful work of anyone's life. And so that is motivating.
1: And do you think, I mean, incentivizing your team, rallying your team to that end. But even thinking about just humanity, I mean, a week or two ago, we see the new headline on the, from the New York Times on the IPCC report, and it seems, to some, it seems hopeless, right? How do you incentivize and rally the troops and and consumers to continue to want to you know be a part of the battle?
0: Look, I, the best time to plant a tree is yesterday, and the second best time is today. Yep. So I, I guess just forget about it just get on with it like if you're not doing the work that you believe is helpful to solve the problem then start doing it right now and if you're doing that in a big company do it in a big company if it's starting a, a company yourself do it there if it's in government do it there like everyone needs to go after this problem if you believe that this is a problem get after it you know there's no sense in groveling around a lack of hope I, like i i am in the innovation ecosystem all the time and there is enormous amounts of technology that's going to come help us solve this problem, but that doesn't mean we should just like throw up our hands and just live our lives and hope that that solves itself. Be part of that solution. Yeah. That's my mindset. If it's not you, who is it going to be? So make it you. Awesome.
1: And that's a great way to wrap the episode. Thank you so much to Joey for joining me today. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel, Chandler Bramstead, and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to creative director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.